episode of Coherence Talks, the podcast where we talk about all things technology, software development, and craftsmanship. I am Jose, J.R. Huerta on LinkedIn and Twitter, and I'll be your host for today's session. And we have a very interesting topic. We're going to be sinking our teeth into uh, platform engineering, DevOps, and you know some of the challenges of uh, applying that to our organizations uh, today. And I have the great pleasure to be joined by Marcus Siebacher and Phil Taprog. Marcus is the CTO of Pagantis, a company in the payment processing space. They offer all kinds of financial services to retailers. Uh, and they their platform actually handles a really high volume all the time. And that is certainly possible due to some of the things that we're going to be discussing today. And we also have Phil. Phil is a principal platform and site reliability engineer here at Cadurance and has a vast knowledge in everything related to cloud solutions, automation, containerization, and how to apply that to enable business growth and scalability. So how are you guys? How's it going? Thank you, thank you, Jose. Um, not too bad, not too bad. Uh, it is a cold evening here in the UK. Uh, I don't know, is the weather any better over where you are, Marcus? <laughs> Hello, everyone. No, weather is much better. I'm here in Austria currently, and it's the first day uh, of snow. So I'm, it's really funny here right now. It's cold. It's cold and wet. I'm normally based in Barcelona. I'm looking forward to get back to Barcelona. Uh, so, guys... Just for the purpose of, of the podcast today, right? Uh, we're going to be talking about uh, platform engineering, DevOps, and for the people listening, how would you go about defining what these things are? Because I think there's a bit of misunderstanding, right? Like there's, there's, uh, it's something that has become very trendy in the, the last, you know, year, two years or so, and uh, is definitely picking up a lot. Uh, so, just for clarity, how will you go about sort of defining what you what you mean when you're talking about uh, those topics? So I, th- I think that is one of the biggest gripes I have with the industry at the moment. As you say, it is a new topic, and everybody has a different answer to the question what these terms mean. I can give you my definition, and Marcus, maybe you can chime in and, and see how that aligns with your experience. So one of the most commonly talked about terms, DevOps, is to me really everything that is involved with allowing developers to take over responsibility for the day-to-day in-production operation of the software, of the service, the product that they own. So it's as much a mindset and a way of working as it is a set of tools. One can't really exist without the other. Uh, Then you talked about platform engineering. Platform engineering to me involves infrastructure and infrastructure automation that allows the use of cloud infrastructure services, um, you know, taking full advantage of the fact that they can be easily provisioned, stood up, torn down, replicated in a way that wasn't really possible when you had to, you know, sign a check and send it off to Dell and wait three months for the hardware to arrive. Um, And of course, there's an overlap because DevOps tooling often needs physical infrastructure to to run on. and different companies, I think, solve this overlap in different ways. But the fields to me are distinct. 
And sort of related to that is this third area that's been really taking off over the last couple of years or so, and that is SRE or site reliability engineering that came out of Google. And that really involves itself with, you know, you know, what happens when you apply software engineering techniques and principles to reliability challenges. So it involves how can we get better insights into how our software is performing? How can we build tooling that allows us to do no downtime deployments? How can we have higher availability? And, you know, what supporting services do we need to get that? So that's sort of sort of my lay of the land, my map of this space. Yeah, so I, I would say I'm very much very much aligned with that. It, it's really about it's software development and IT operations coming together, automate a lot in order to achieve two things in my view, which is speed of delivery and the reliability of the software services. There was one thing which made which really struck me when I started to get more involved with that during my career and was the one thing when I was reading about DORA projects and the uh, scientific approach that they had, which was really about the software delivery performance can actually be measured and there's capabilities that you can invest and and, uh, increase in order to really look at some metrics and, and get uh, good at things. So what I what I also enjoy about it is, yes, there, there starts to be tools, but there's also some metrics and measurements towards it that you can start build some lean engineering around it. You can, you know, build experiments on how to improve software delivery, measure things, learn and, and adapt over time. Yeah, this, this was one of the things I was going to mention, like, why do you think it's become so trendy? Like, what are what are the benefits, let's say, of of going for something like this, right? So, I think the most obvious reason why it's successful is because it works. Right? <laughs> <laughs> well said. The results are faster software delivery processes, higher velocity, uh, and better reliability. The sort of taking on operational responsibilities changes the way people think about the software they write. They, it changes the way they think about how to solve problems, and it gives them a more direct access to all the challenges that their software will encounter when it actually has to serve you know, hundreds of thousands of customers, maybe millions of customers. And uh, the, the outcome inevitably is that things get delivered more quickly. They are meeting customer demand and the reliability of the overall solutions is better. And we can go into more details, maybe why I think you know, I've got my theories why that is, but I think that's the, the, the overarching reason why more and more companies are looking at how they can adopt maybe at least some of these principles uh, and integrate them into their existing engineering workflows. And And let's just underline what you said before which is and it works it's like it's a continuous proven approach that you can do and it works you need you have different stages in your companies but the, the principles that you can apply the techniques it really works i have a i, I was thinking of an example that i could share from our pagantis uh, journey that we had so pagantis is the payment platform as you introduced uh, jose but 
we were based in Spain and we moved to, in 2018 and 19, we did a big refactor of the platform because we needed to be fit to expand in Europe. And um, for some reason or the other, we were rebuilding nearly the whole platform and it uh, moved into some big bag, bag releases rather than small batches. Uh, we thought we would be faster and, and we went a bit crazy. And, but once we released it, um, our clients were not happy because the quality of our service was not as expected. So we looked at some metric, and uh, it, which was the average time to restore our service. And in 2019, Q1, it was embarrassing 16 hours. But then we really looked into you know, monitoring and observability and, and implemented best practices so that in Q2, our average time to restore service moved down from the 16 hours to 33 minutes. And that really got me hooked because that was something like, you can really you know, look at your problem, see in the industry where, where, where other people have their challenges, apply some patterns, learn from them, and it has a huge impact on, on, on your company and the way you deliver software. And that, I think, sort of leads into another aspect that, Marcus, you mentioned earlier, which is you know, having metrics and having data and using that data to make decisions. One side effect that comes from automating more of these processes and adopting some of this tooling is that it gives you metrics both into how your software performs, but also how your engineering organization performs. And that puts you in a very exciting position because, you know, as you say, you can now experiment. You can have a hypothesis that changing the way you work will deliver certain benefits. You can do this and you can see the benefits materialize on a graph on the wall or if they don't, you can say that experiment did not pay off and you can try something else. Yeah, it changes the also the business mindset behind it, right? Like it's like, why don't we try it, no, and and see what happens instead of oh, we need to do all of this, you know, big design upfront or, or big, you know, big bang, no, um, in, and it becomes more like you said, no, experiments, etc. I think we, I have a question for you. So, would you say that uh, things like uh, microservices have also influenced the? let's say the the popularity or or the this this upward trend with uh things like devops and uh platform engineering this idea of you know we need we have a monolith now we need to change to microservices so we want to extract that to be able to scale and all these things so it's definitely part of it because what you are looking for is autonomous pods or teams or however you call them in your organization. And in order to be autonomous on that, what approach is to find loosely coupled systems and that just helps you to get autonomous and and then get also the accountability within teams. And if you're then lucky and have actually platform tools, you really have autonomous teams that can deliver on their part of a bigger organization. And what we saw is, yes, that that is really helpful. But it's just, it, it's one part of the puzzle, I'd say. I think the important part is to uh, get the order of the horse and the cart correctly, right? What you really want is autonomous teams, autonomous teams that can deliver value independently and have few dependencies on others, few touch points, low friction simply get the job done more quickly. 
and are more easily able to adapt and adjust to changing demands. And using microservices as an architecture pattern can allow those teams to work with their part of the overall solution more easily. But it's I, th- I think it's a tool to achieve that goal rather than the other way around. You know, you can achieve that same autonomy with a monolithic system. You just need very different and in my view also much more complex tooling in order to do it. Okay. And and uh, when it comes to say uh, I don't want to call them wrong interpretations of what DevOps is or uh, platform engineering. What are what are some of the anti patterns that you uh, that you've seen out there, or even you know that you tried and realized, oh, this is this is not probably not the way uh, to go forward with this. So one of the things that we started with was something that we called DevOps within teams, which is already funny because it sounded like it's a person because we assigned the person to every team. Uh, to The goal was to support autonomous teams and help teams to learn infrastructure and how to be more autonomous on them. <laughs> we achieved autonomy and a bit of learning, but we achieved way too much autonomy because every team now uh, had their own uh, interpretation of how the platform should look like. And uh, we just created like a, a, a platform that was, that we didn't create a platform anymore. It was like every platform engineer invented their own best practices and stuff and so on. So that was, that was for me an anti-pattern. It, uh, it, it occurred to me, you, you didn't just build microservices, you, you built micro platforms. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well said, well said. And then one of the things that we then did to roll that back, we, we introduced the platform team. So there was a more centralized support. We moved back from the Wild West to a more common set of, of tools and practices. It's much better. We were able to roll back and have more common approach, but we also have a wall. So it's with Windows and nice people on both ends, but it's still a wall. I think um, for the size of the company that we're currently have it's fine because it's it, it's rather it's around 30 to 50 engineers depending on where we were and it it works because they can provide the tooling which i think is is really nice and um they also do all the operations um so it's good how it is right now but i also think these things have to change now as we're part of a bigger family now being acquired after paying it's around 200 to 300 engineers and there's much more um, specialization. So the challenge there will be how can we continue having autonomous teams? But the good thing there is also we we can have more specialized uh, teams that that might help us. So you brought up two things there that that really resonate with me, uh, Marcus. The first one is, you know, mentioning the ownership of tools. Um, One very sort of sort of dangerous uh, development that I have noticed in the industry is this impression that some people have that if you are doing DevOps, then there is no ops because everything is automated and everything is, is you know, uh, the, the developers will take care of it. We, I've heard people say we're a zero ops company and, and these sorts of buzzwords. And the reality is that's just not a thing. There is always ops. There's always going to be some work that is not worth automating or that 
you don't have the time to automate now, so you have to do it by hand. There is always toil. And that toil needs to be done by someone. And that is actually a dedicated skill set that not necessarily every software developer has or wants to have. And recognizing that that needs ownership is important, just as it's important to recognize that common and shared tooling needs ownership. You know, I've, I've spoken to, to one uh, head of engineering some time ago who said, oh, oh, we don't need a platform team or something like that. Uh, you know, everybody owns the tooling. And you know, the old adage that if everybody owns it, nobody owns it still holds true. Nobody makes the time, nobody has the priority to improve that tooling or to look at what the tooling needs to achieve. The, I think the best way to look at shared tools like this, be they for, for, for DevOps purposes or, or whatever they do for the company, internal tools are a product and they need the same sort of treatment as a product. They need to understand what their customers are, what their customers need, and they need someone to care about them and to spend the time to improve them. And that is best placed with someone who actually has the ownership, regardless of whether you want to call them a platform engineer or a platform team, or if you want to call them something else, identifying who owns these things is what makes you successful as you scale your engineering organization. Yeah, you mentioned you mentioned a couple of things there because um, uh, it it is important to say okay, you need someone to own those things, right? But it's really easy for that to become a silo, right? Like the, for for platform to become you know a, a bottleneck or you know a, a, some sort of uh, a stopper, no, to to the agility. Then in the end, you know, it's like we we were talking about that at the beginning. Right? One of the biggest things that like you can deploy things faster, and you can you know, you can adapt both the business and and the product that you're building, right? But then you get the the opposite effect completely if you don't handle that uh, properly. Right? So that's that's one area there. Um, the other area is around uh, scale, also, right? Because when you're um, uh, doing something like this for a smaller team, right? Uh, the uh, let's say that that wall, no, that you were mentioning is maybe one, two people, and they're they're quite close, etc. But if you go to a bank or if you go to you know some of the bigger organizations that are trying to you know adopt this uh, methodology, then it's it's a completely different uh, ball game, right? So, what are some of the uh, let's call it tricks or, or, or ways in which you've seen that you can both deal with that scale that you were uh, discussing now, the need for someone owning those tools and being able to like serve the rest of the organization without uh, completely losing you know, the benefits of, of something like that just, uh, just because of the size. I, I can maybe talk about one experience that I've had in the past. Uh, around that. Uh, a few years ago, I was working for a company called Pusher, where 
me and my team, we basically built a Kubernetes a platform as a service for internal use. That was before uh, services like, like EKS and, and other managed Kubernetes solutions existed. So we had to build it pretty much from scratch and we had to build all the sort of shared tooling around observability, a deployment pipeline, and everything that you need in order to make your small, nimble product engineering team successful and allow them to move fast and break things and put them back together. And and we actually fell into exactly that trap. You know, we once we were a team, we had our own agenda and we we built the things that we thought people needed. But none of us had the time or to be frank, the right skill set to sort of find out exactly, do the market research, if you will, find out where our product teams were moving, what their biggest gripes were. And in order to counteract that a little bit and, and move the scale over to the other side, uh, we actually uh, decided to treat the platform like any other product. And so we got a dedicated platform product owner as a role whose sole job it was to work with the rest of the product organization and with the rest of the engineering organization to identify what is it that platform needs to provide, what sort of product features do we need to have in order for our engineers to be successful and then use that input to steer our you know, planning process, pick what things to prioritize and what things to maybe not do at all, even though they would have been really fun. And you you are mentioning there the 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 idea of you know custom development versus off the shelf product, which is also a, a, an interesting decision, right? Because the the more custom you go, right, uh, then that means you're going to have even more dependencies, right? Like they, there's no longer, you know, you, you sort of kill maybe the upgrade path that you have or, you know, like the, that ability to like keep things, uh, you know, relevant to the context of the organization, but at the same time up to date, because as, as we mentioned before, no, it's like uh, it, it's evolving all the time, right? There's new uh, things and changes coming up with each of these technologies that you still don't want to lose that benefit from uh, and uh so this is definitely one of those pitfalls right like you you don't want to go so custom that then you know you you're completely stuck in time because you cannot evolve as fast as as everything else right yeah so i i, I think being fast and being safe doesn't make any sense if you're running in the wrong direction. Or this is a bit what you're saying. You know? So <laughs> we can, <laughs> if we're, it, it's really about delivering value as a company and not as a, a platform team or whatever. So everything needs to add up. I think. So same experience. We have. Our old platform was uh, based on Docker Swarm, a lot of things built in-house, and it, it's quite some effort to have that at scale running in various countries. And as with the new rollout for the new uh, company that we're doing, um, we we moved to EKS, and, and, and the platform engineers love it because all the toolings they had to build before themselves and then things were falling apart and where you have to look into so many things that now you just get off the shelf is fantastic. And I think that's that's a, an important part to look at that you 
really look at what you try to achieve and what goal you want to achieve. And, and I really love your part, what you said, Phil, about like, as, an, as engineers, your customers need to be, uh, so as a platform engineers, you should treat that as a product and you should also look into your customers and how you increase their value, how you add value to what they have. So it's a great approach. I don't have a, a PO uh, or product manager in my um, current platform team, but I'm thinking of introducing that. We should have some conversations around that. Although they're great because they always say like, you know, what we need to achieve is uh, we are serving our developers, but I think it's great if we really start to look into really product learnings, product metrics. We really try to approach that much more uh, as a product and not only, yeah, we need to serve our developers and then take it from there because it's not... Who was saying that? You know, if you ask for, if you ask people what they wanted, they they would ask me for uh, faster horses uh, instead of like building a car. So, I, I I love this approach. I really think that's a, something that I can add to my company. Thank you. I think it it depends to a degree on the organizational structures you have, whether or not that role should be or needs to be a dedicated person. Um, but that focus on your customers as a platform team, I think that's what's important. And it also needs to inform, uh, Jose, as you uh, sort of alluded to, your decision around whether to buy or build something, right? Um, if you ask engineers, you'll basically get two flavors, the people who are afraid to build anything and the people who want to build everything. And uh, often it falls to, to tech leads to sort of sequester both impulses to a certain degree. And, uh, you know, reminding ourselves what, as platform engineers, what we're doing the work for, what we're trying to enable can help steer those conversations. You know, going back to the, to the, the Kubernetes past that we built, I still think that we did a pretty good job and I'm proud of the work that we did. But, you know, in the end, we built a platform for our engineers to place their products on top of that still caused us maybe an out of hours on-call incident every six weeks, every other month. It took us about nine months to build and get to that point. And during those nine months, AWS spent about six months denying Kubernetes existed, then U-turning, and with the remaining three months, building a managed Kubernetes service that was better than anything we could have ever built with the small team we had. And you know, it's important to recognize, at a certain scale, these companies and the products they offer will necessarily always be better than what you can build in-house. Uh, you have to ask yourself, is my need really so different from that of 80% of the market that I should build my own. Maybe it is, but probably it isn't. And, and this also introduces uh, the you know, financial aspect and, and uh, mindset uh, you know, switch in the organization from you know the capex versus opex kind of thing, right? Where you bought something and then you know, but it, it then becomes you know you're paying for a service, you're getting all of these advantages, but you need to understand where that also fits, you know, within <laughs> within your business. Now, when you when you look at the uh, profit and loss, etc., right? So the the idea there is also you know, do you can you do without it, right? And uh, or, or do you really need to be, you know, without 
that service, right? Um, and there's another aspect here around uh, the, let's say, uh, when you when you think of it as a project, right? And your project will now include this inside uh, the the the. It's no longer oh, we need you know we set up a server and that's it. We bought this machine like there's lots of you know uh, big companies with tons of on-prem stuff right uh that now need to that switch into okay we're moving to the cloud but what are we going to do with all of the stuff here right like what and how are we gonna because in the meantime we need to manage both right so uh, this is this is also uh, an interesting aspect no the the idea of how do you apply some of the same concepts whether it's in the cloud you know, using the services that you're paying for versus the stuff that you've already committed to and you still need to hold on maybe because you need it because of regulatory reasons or, you know, you, you already made the investment, right? So that's another that's another point. Yeah, definitely. So on the project versus product part, I, I, I really love what you're saying there because very often these things get treated as projects, which is you have a defined beginning and a defined end. And then you deliver it and you move on. And that's just not happening. So there's, as you said at the beginning, Phil, there's no zero ops you have, you know. I think, you know, it's important to recognize that that every line of code you write is a line of code somebody has to maintain and change and update to new requirements. Even if that line of code is a line of Terraform or CloudFormation or something, it's still never over. Right, the pro- project continues as long as people use it. Yeah, no, exactly. That's that's the uh, again. It's a it's a mindset. Uh, it's a different mindset now also for for the business on how to approach these things. So, moving then. So, if you wanted to let's say create your ideal platform team, how would that look like? Like, do you have any uh, preferences there? Like, what would you what what would you do to assemble it? Avengers. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I'm very interested in seeing how Phil sees that because you're exposed to more companies, Phil. But my answer to that will be, I don't, I, I think this will have to change over time. So, you know, if you start with something small, you need to have different teams and skill set and you need to look at it different. And then if you grow, things just change. What I would try to emphasize and really look at is like, always have the questions like, do we really need to build that thing ourselves? Because there's for sure others that where we can build things on top. So I would use platform as a service like Heroku and get rid of a lot of things that I and in this company and previous companies, we just built by ourselves and then see how I invest more in observability monitoring and then take it from there. And Heroku, I think, I think is a great example of a company that has really nailed that, right? Developers who use Heroku in production have nothing but praises for the developer experience. And I think in, in that respect, if you are a platform team and you have an internal PaaS sort of product, Heroku is the standard to beat. And it's a, it's a hard standard to get to. But to answer your, your question, Jose, about the, the sort of ideal uh, platform team, if that is a thing, uh, 
it does depend, I think, on the technology that you have chosen to base your uh, products on. But one thing that I think is common is you need people who have that product mindset, who actually care about the developer experience that they provide, who care about, you know, not just the technology, but putting it to good use with the people, the developers, the engineers who have to use it and, and you know, get value for the company out of it. And the other sort of common aspect, I think, is you need people from a software development background and with software development skills, both so that they can understand what the developer's challenges are, but also so that they can fill gaps. The cloud infrastructure services landscape is becoming ever more diverse, ever more complex. There are more and more products out there that get you 80, 90% of where you need to be. Uh, sometimes a combination of them gets you there, but the remaining 10% that really make the journey smooth, that make it feel like it's all one piece, one tool, that you often have to build yourself. And often that's glue, to be fair. It's not like you know complicated software engineering problems that you're solving, but it, you still are a strictly better platform team if you have the ability to provide that glue and bring two pieces together to make something better than both of them are by themselves in the hands of the uh, other software engineers that are using them. It's not like everyone can just say, oh, I'm going to build a platform engineering team and, and you know, the talent is readily available for me and, you, you know, like, and I have the budget and everything, right? Like you, a lot of the times you need to, you need to work within the constraints that you're, uh, that you have in the organization, no? And that will also define a lot of the options that you have, right? Uh, and, and most likely as, as it takes a, let's say a more, uh, the interesting role or, or, or supporting role within you know what you're doing uh, it, it will evolve with that right the the team i, I don't know what, what's the size uh, right now for the the team uh that you guys are using uh marcus so we're around 30 people currently uh our platform team is uh four people um we were 60 beginning of the year now a bit less um but we're much more streamlined uh yeah, yeah it, it's a big contrast now in comparison with i don't know like yeah. lots of uh you know operations people working on you know just for a smaller so big challenges downsizing and so on as hard as they are but they really force you to think about you know how you 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 know you cannot make these efforts anymore of saying like, okay, let's build something just for the sake of building it. And then we find out if it's useful, you really need to start focusing. Okay. How can you add value to your company? And that's the part that I enjoy from it. If there's any, but there's really the part where you really start focusing everybody. And that goes to what you said, Phil, before everybody is about here to deliver uh, here about to deliver value. And it helps you to do also sometimes some tough decisions that you just throw out infrastructure and other things that you had before where you just say like look, we can't just not afford that anymore because we need to focus on what's the value of our company and how, how we help our business and um, that made us I'm, I'm very happy to so i'm very proud of my team that although it got small was able to rebuild the whole platform for for this afterpay acquisition they were able to rebuild the whole platform within five months 
moving from uh, Docker Swarm cluster to Kubernetes, but on top of that, 45 microservices, very loosely coupled architecture, observability and monitoring on top of it. And uh, in a very short time, uh, we're going to be in Spain and France with a new product. And uh, part of why we get acquired is because of the speed of development that my engineering team can do. So now that I'm able to do that, a huge shout out to uh, my my engineers and my platform team because it's it's amazing and impressive what they're doing. They're quite tired, I have to say. <laughs> they're, they're able to achieve a lot of stuff while maintaining the other platform. So there was a Black Friday with 11x uh, the amount of traffic that we had in October. And um, everybody was really happy because this, they moved from product development that everybody did in the last four months to platform scalability and the engineering challenges again. And they managed to go through Black Friday uh, without incidents to, to our merchants. So super impressed with what they're doing. I think that's always been sort of my my benchmark when you're working on a product that has like this sort of mass market target audience, right? You you should always try and build for 10x because that 10x, be it a Black Friday or, or whatever it is, that 10x event yeah. is going to happen and probably sooner than than you think. So um, you know, asking yourself how do you get to the next 10x is incredibly important on every level. You know, the, the infrastructure has to do it. The glue has to be strong enough and the software components you build have to be able to do it. And if you keep that goal in mind, then you can be successful in, in growing. What I often see is companies that get to a certain size and they think, great, we've made it here. So we don't really need to invest in scalability anymore. And before they know is they become a victim of their own success and things start falling apart. Great point. And what I would add to that is focus on 10x. Don't focus on 100 or 1000x because it's like 10x is great and then take it from there. But it's the, the current uh, evolution that, uh, that, that, you, that resonates a lot with. And it's also very true, right? You have to you have to build for what you actually need rather than what what you may need in the future, because that future may look very different. You know, suddenly, I, I don't know, maybe completely hypothetical and just a you know, crazy idea. But what if a pandemic happens that suddenly changes the way retail works? Cannot imagine. <laughs> <laughs> it's 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 far. Yeah, yeah, and and you're also touching on on another, uh, I think, interesting uh, subject around this, which is you know. 10x what like what is it that you're measuring as the you know performance or or how your system what are the indicators of you know is my platform doing well do i need to scale up what do you know like all these things which require both you know thinking about it beforehand right to to design your application in a way not only that allows you to scale but also to be you know, monitor it in a uh, in an effective way. It's just not measuring for the sake of measuring, but measure, measuring the right things. 
right? Um, and uh, and we're already touching a little bit on the you know what's this whole SRE kind of thing and and uh, the Google pro- approach to to some of these things. Could you comment a little bit on that? If I may, I'd like to sort of say, take a little segue there because we did just talk about Black Friday and and the, the sort of 10x. What does that look like? What are we measuring? Uh, it's also, I think, important to bring product decisions back into that because often you can solve these challenges in different ways with different trade-offs. You know, if you take Black Friday, I know some online retailers for Black Friday, they don't scale their infrastructure and their platform to be able to immediately deliver service to all of the people who want to get Black Friday deals, they put queues in place where the website will say, you know, you have to wait five minutes before you can place an order. And that is an easier engineering challenge to solve, but it also delivers a worse, arguably worse customer service. Yeah. So, So you have to ask yourself when you say 10x, what sort of 10x are you talking about and what are the trade-offs you're willing to make from a product perspective um, before you decide as a, as a platform engineer how am I going to address these challenges I, I love that. that that's a great uh, one and it reminds me of something that we that was actually a very interesting methods, metric for me looking backwards which was we had Black Friday during all the existence of our platform, and we had times when we put uh, code freezes or deployment freezes before uh, Black Friday and over the whole period of, of Christmas, which is holiday season, and where's the uh, a lot of traffic there, and that was just like from an engineering delivery perspective, it was horrible because you first you were not able to deliver incre- incrementally, and second, that January was horrible because you had to run that, that your big bang uh, deploys that you need to fix. And um, I'm very happy that right now we, we we passed over that, but I see that in an organization that's still very common on 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 trying to actually not trying to address the problem, which is like, okay, how can you make sure that you deliver in small batches and make sure that you see if things happen and if you get problems, but, you know, just trying to block time and say like, look, well, from here to there, you're not allowed to deploy. Obviously, you need to do that sometimes and, and, and you are at the state where you have to do it. But the immediate question is like, well, how do we get out of there? And I think that that's a great point, right? The... Uh big bang release always comes at a cost. And and I'm quite glad that since a few years ago, there is now actually literature and, and research to show that, you know, the, the oft-cited Accelerate book by uh, Nicole Forsgren et al. Uh, has really hammered home that, you know, you can show in the data organizations that have a higher change frequency, that have a... Uh, low change failure rate while maintaining that high change frequency and that can recover from failures quickly are also the ones that are delivering the most business value that are performing the best. So if you can invest in moving your organizations in that direction, where you can release code straight to production and you have the tooling to ensure that that is safe. And if it goes wrong, it gets rolled back automatically. And you know, you can you can deal with these things without losing money. Uh, you are almost guaranteed to grow the business farther and safer than uh, organizations that try to sort of circumvent these problems by having huge change freezes and, and then trying every January to dig themselves out of the hole they've dug themselves into. 
Uh, one of the best books we, we did, if we have a recommendation session, we should add this one. Uh, this is really one of the ones that drove me most in, into how to approach these things. And, and plus, there is actually, as you said, there's not only the metrics, but there's also really the, the tools and the skill sets recommended there, what you can do uh, to improving it, trunk-based development, TDD, and so on. So, Which book is that? Accelerate, the one that you were with. Oh, the Accelerate book. Okay. Ah, okay, okay. It's the one that you already mentioned. <laughs> Best Christmas present for every developer. No, I think it's a, it's a great, it's a great uh, um, sort of well-rounded look at, at what works and why it works. And it's underpinned with the data and the research that, that should really convince anyone who still has doubts. Because it shows, you know, if you adopt these things, you should expect these needles to move, and you know, you will see that happen. And you know, there's your proof. Which, by the way, brings me back to the whole SRE uh, topic uh, in general, because that's really what SRE is all about, right? Gathering the data that allows engineers to make better decisions about engineering and and scaling challenges. And demonstrating that things work, that how reliable something really is. You know, I remember back in the in the early days, the only metric you had whether a release went well was the number of uh, customer support tickets that were opened during the week after. Right, that was your metric. A good release meant you got few of those. A bad release meant you got a lot of them. It is still the metric for lots of organizations, I have to say. But <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, I'm sure it is. I'm sure it is. I have, I have this one. That, that's the question that I have in my postmortems. Is the first one, you know, who realized about the problem, and then you can go into this, which is like, oh, it was the merchant or the customer that called us. It's like, okay, now we know what we need to work on, right? <laughs> that's, that's exactly right. Right? It's, it's. You should never be the last person to find out that your stuff is broken. And um, I've really seen this transform engineering organizations. I've, you know, earlier on in, in my career, you know, I've sat in meeting rooms with three senior experienced product engineers, you know, all arguing, why is the thing slow? And, you know, one would say, oh, I think it's the database. One would say, I think it's the new parser that we're using. Uh, one would say, no, nah, I think it's the network. It was a network outage or something. And then you would go away and you had no idea which one it was. You might try some things, but you couldn't even tell if they worked or not. You know, now I like to be in a place where I have a dashboard that I can look at, where I can see, you know, over the last six months, as our number of customers have grown, that particular service has got slower and slower. It's using a database. Those database queries have gone longer and longer. Are we maybe missing an index? You know, now you can have these conversations and then you can add the index and you can see if the needle moves. And if the needle moves, you know you did the right thing. Yeah, love it. An example from this Black Friday, because we had the good toolings and the monitoring in place, I actually miscalculated and I said, like, I expect that we are not going to have much more increase of traffic than the 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 years without pandemic. <laughs> and it was like, I, I told my teams it's going to be 2x and it's something that we already solved. So don't worry about it. Let's focus on the product development. Just have an eye on, on the metrics. And after two, three hours, somebody came and said like, look, it looks more like 10x and actually the CPU here is broken and we need to you know, deploy some more pods uh, on this service. And I was like, oh, 
okay, great. So good that the monitoring works, but then it was also the, the great thing was like it made things visible. It was not our customers complaining. And it was very fast to fix. So there was really teams were working one day during Black Friday and saying like, oh, it's actually more traffic than we had it. So let's see how we scale these things up. And it was blah, 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 and things worked. And on Monday, everything was back to product development. There is another aspect of that, which is, you know, being reactive versus being proactive with the service, right? Like uh, the the idea of, you know, when it's happening, yes, to realize and, and being able to, you know, react to it and, and scale and, and do all of that. But there's also the not waiting until the performance is being degraded, right? And, and having, you know, leading metrics that will tell you, uh, how the system will behave, right? And, and sort of like aim for those, right? And I think, uh, you know, setting objectives and, and that kind of stuff uh, is is one of the key aspects of, uh, I guess, also from SRE, right? Like understanding it as a, you know, fixing performance also before performance gets degraded, right? Like how do you, how do you make that observability work for you? Not only when it's happening, no, but before it even gets there, no, that's, that's a, a big aspect of it. I think a large part of it is recognizing that at a certain scale, certain problems only appear when you go into production and you need really to have the observability there and you have to have the tooling in order to react quickly to when you notice problems, right? You can have the best suite of unit tests and smoke tests, end-to-end tests and load tests and whatnot. And you can still have situations where a problem only occurs under production load. And when it does, you need to be able to react to that. Organizations that try to, you know, of course, you will know this, you know, the the sort of places that have six month test cycles before they finally bring out a release that is the most well tested thing you've ever seen also often have the most problems when that thing actually goes into production. Great point. And then there's things that you can just deploy part of it. So how you reduce the, how you see things, but also how you do reduce the impact of, of the things that you put into production. Absolutely. Yeah. There's you know, various strategies that, that companies like Google use, uh, and they're actually far more achievable than a lot of people think. Um, but it's, it's important, I think, if you are going in that direction where you want to see how your software performs in production, you need to be able to detect when it doesn't. You need to be able to pull it back and you need to be able to report on the impact that that has had on your service commitments so that you can say, despite the problems that we've had, that will always happen when you make changes, we have fulfilled our obligations to the business. Or, or maybe we haven't and we need to learn lessons and we need to change. I really resonate with that. And it was one thing that struck me was like the introduction of, of budgets that we had when we moved, of error budgets, when we moved the conversations that we had with, you know, our sales teams and so on, we, we sat down with them because whenever something happened, uh, we had to have conversations up until, you know, report to the CEO about like, why the hell again things break? And I was like, okay, so we, we can do two things. We can do nothing, then uh, nothing breaks. 
although we run on Amazon and that also breaks as we, as we learned like last week. Have we recently? <laughs> <laughs> but, but the conversation that we should have is about the budget. You don't give me a budget that is fine for you on how much error we can have, downtime, whatever, or, or let's put it to numbers in, you know, money in the end for the company. How much are you willing to give us uh, and then give you back speed of delivery for that? We, we're rolling out a new product. They have huge budget. I'm like, I put it on production. I have one order per uh, day. Well, if that doesn't work, maybe that's fine because it's the first one and we have like very friendly merchants. That's okay. So, but I can put them things on production much earlier than than uh, than on on some other part where like you have huge traffic and you need to work with smaller budget. But it's again a conversation about budget and not like oh, again, something exploded, you know, what are you doing with your engineering teams? It's like, yeah, you know, we, we have, we have to, I like taking that from not only from a product approach, but also a budget that you can, that you can work with um, in order to deliver and, and change your product. And I think it doesn't just stop at new products either, right? If you start having a conversation around, you know, how good is good enough. If you talk to, to a product person or you talk to a head of, head of product or head of marketing or something and you ask them, you know, how available does our service need to be? They're going to say, yeah, what do you mean? 100%, of course, all the time, right? Um, we as technologists know that 100% isn't a thing. There's always going to be a problem at some point. And, you know, once you start talking about okay, so do we need 99.9% or do we need 99.999%? Well, one is exponentially more expensive than the other. And you can then start having a conversation about the business value. You know, maybe, you know, 99.9% with a cumulative 40 minutes of downtime in a month, maybe that's good enough. Maybe it isn't. But getting to five seconds a month will cost us this many person months and this many dollar signs to achieve. And the business can then start thinking about, you know, is the return on that investment worth spending that money and that effort? Yeah. So, so looking at, uh, talking about uh, businesses, like what would you say are the, uh, let's say the, the, success factors for someone who's trying to to implement this right so someone who really wants this to work they're they're you know you mentioned uh before you referred to a journey right uh marcus like it didn't start where we are today right like it, it started a lot different than that right um what would you say are the success criterias let's say that that allowed for you know to to get you to where you are today um, I think again, I'm gonna I'm gonna unpack that a bit. Um, what would it be done right? What are the benefits? And I think there is as a company, you can outrank your competitors. You can deliver value at light speed. This is how you should be able to to see it. So technology will not be the limiting factor in whatever in in how you want to create value if you do it right. And this is top down and bottom up as a, as a developer, you can sleep at night. So you come in the morning, you check in with your team and have your favorite morning drink. You start working on your first task by writing a test before you code. You finish it within some hours and commit it to master. 
And that's it. You move on. And if something breaks, you get notified with a context and easy way to take action. We're far from that, but I can dream up my 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 ideal world now. And that should be your rhythm. No? So you that that's what you should do as a developer. And 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 like this, you really add value. How to get there? It is a journey. Um, I think the conversations that we had about the book Accelerate and and, and the scientific approach there is something um, which I would recommend to start with. And um, there is actually a very simple four multiple choice question um, what, uh, check on a website that I can recommend and that we might add also to the to the podcast yeah to the description yeah which is it goes about throughput and stability so how fast you are deploying code what's the lead time for your changes how what's the time to restore services and then change frame rate and then take it from there it even gives you some recommendations so i would it's a very hands-on approach but i would recommend people to if you're interested in it don't lead, read hundreds of literatures go there Take action, take it from there. I think it's to me it helped a lot on on you know first learning about the metrics that really count, and then seeing on okay how can I actually do an impact with this with this recommendation. I think one thing that I would like to add that is really important, really close to my heart is is if you want to be successful in this journey, abandon the hero culture. A lot of organizations have this this sort of ideal where you know people burn the midnight oil and you know somebody stays up until three in the morning to finish the thing or you know there is an outage and so everybody hops on a on a call together and stay up at three in the until three in the morning to fix it. If somebody has to stay up until three in the morning, that's not you know a win for the team. Mm. It's a failure of the organization that didn't account for this possibility that didn't put the right tooling, the right processes, maybe the right skill sets in place. And, and you know, get, getting away from this, this we need a hero to save the day and going into a steady rhythm, Marcus, as you describe it, where people can actually focus on delivering value rather than, you know, pulling the hot potatoes out of, out of the fire. Uh, that is, is in, in, instrumental to being successful in the long term. Yeah, those. Uh, so the, the cultural aspect, I think, is key here, right? Like you, you need to have a good culture, a culture of learning, where people are, you know, always, you know, improving. And and yes, you use this, you know, scientific approach, etc., to to be able to understand how much you're improving and how the things that you're learning and putting into practice are actually getting you to where you want to go. Uh, but if you don't have that in in the first place, right? Like if you don't have that uh, uh, both mix of pragmatism and excellence, no, and, and mastery, uh, that that's sort of uh, difficult to achieve, right? In, in the first, that you can you can train people, you can give them the skills, you can give them the tooling, but there needs to be that you know motivation and that uh, uh, mindset. Not only from the engineering team, but also from the from the business side, as as we mentioned, there's lots of different changes that need to happen there. Also, no, uh, so I would say that's that's also an important aspect in there, right? So, uh, for someone who is starting, yeah, with this, and this is the, the recommendations part, what would you 
what would you tell them? Are, are there any resources, for instance, that you would uh, that you mentioned before? Besides the accelerate book, we'll definitely add the links in the description for the podcast. But you know, people want to know more about this subject. They want to like start dipping their toes into uh, into the puffer engineering pool, or you know, the DevOps culture, or you know, taking steps. Uh, what would you recommend to them? I have two things. One is Christmas is approaching, so I'm I'm, I'm coming with something with a book which is which is uh, which is called the Phoenix Project. It's from the same authors. Um, it's about somebody like us who is living who is within an organization and living his worst nightmares because everything's falling apart, and um, but takes on the challenge to you know solve work he, himself out of the mud and help his whole organization thrive. It's a great book. It motivates on, on you know, going into more detail about IT, DevOps, and, and how, how we can help actually our business win. And other than that, I would recommend the Google DevOps section, which is actually, so Google bought Dora, the, the company that did all the research. Uh, and, 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 and where the Accelerate book was also uh, published by them. So I think that's a good start there. And there's also this, this questionnaire, four questions, multiple choice. Uh, if, uh, assess on where you are currently within your journey and take it from there. Yeah, from, from my side, I think you know, we've already mentioned the Accelerate book. I, I definitely would recommend Accelerate uh, if you're looking for something to actually put under the Christmas tree. Uh, other than that, um, if someone is interested in looking more into metrics and metrics-driven sort of insights into how software operates, alerting, and how to use that for effective on-call, uh, Google's SRE book and the SRE workbook are both free and uh, well worth a read um, to anyone who's interested in the, the, the details of how Google does it. And to be fair, they, they do a lot of it right. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, yeah, on top of that, I would, I would also mention that there's lots of communities all over the country and, you know, internationally also that, that have this topic as, as part of that. So definitely getting in touch with some of those and, uh, just getting to know people who are going through the same, uh, journey, you know, and, and can, you know, lend each other a hand, that kind of stuff is, uh, I found personally to be, uh, quite helpful, no? Uh, people to bounce ideas off and and that kind of stuff so that that's also uh i would say uh, another another step there we'll we'll link uh, some of those in the description also okay so guys it's been a pleasure as always yeah we, we'll add some topics that we didn't approach uh maybe there'll be you know if there's enough interest we'll we'll do a, another session uh this it's been great having you here it's been very interesting i hope to have you back some other time or maybe you know some other people from the team that kind of stuff and uh see you all in the next uh session of coherence talks uh one last thing if people want to get in touch with you uh somewhere like how can they find you so the easiest probably just write me something on LinkedIn. As a, otherwise, we can share email. But LinkedIn is probably the easiest one to start with, and then we, we can have a conversation. Yeah, I think I'm going to have to go along with that and point at LinkedIn. I'm not particularly well versed in the, uh, you know, micro blogging and self. <laughs> <laughs>
Twitter, Twitter yeah. birth. All the, all the things that the kids are into these days. <laughs> okay, okay. All right, so it's been a pleasure, guys, and uh, well, see you in the next episode. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for having us, and Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas.